This is the donut. The goal of the donut is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the planet. Sometimes when I present the ideas of donut economics, people say, mm, is this capitalism or is this communism or is it socialism? And you think, really? Are these the only choices we have? The isms of the last century? Can we not come up with some ideas of our own and create new names for them and see new patterns? Governments in every country are almost addicted to citing GDP figures as if this was proof of success. And yet it's so clearly not. Because we have climate breakdown and COVID lockdown and financial meltdown, we have to pursue something far richer to move from this pursuit of endless growth, which we can now see is hitting us with crisis after crisis, moving to a goal of thriving in a circle and said, just as there is an outer limit of humanity's pressure on the planet, so too there must be an inner limit. So the hole in the middle is a place where people are left falling short on the essentials of life. It's where people don't have the food, water, energy, healthcare, housing, education, political voice that every person has a claim to meeting. We want to leave nobody in this hole, get everybody into the green ring of the donut itself. The donut does not give us answers. You don't plug in a calculation and it tells you how to do it. What it does is provide a space for people to come together. In fact, in Amsterdam, the policymakers said, we now realize that if we're aiming to get into the donut, we need to change our own internal organization so that we're more holistic and connected in our planning and policy. And I think smart policymakers realize that they don't need a solution to financial crisis and a different one to climate crisis and a different one to health emergencies. They need a paradigm that no longer pushes for endless growth but instead focuses on thriving, on resilience, and on well-being within communities. So I heard about Donut Economics uh, for the first time this year, and uh, who was speaking was economist Kate Roworth, and essentially she's explaining this concept. Uh, there's a couple quotes that, that she had in there that I just want to highlight, um, and I'm going to come back to this a couple times. I'd actually spliced up a video to kind of bring it all together, um, but we just actually played the first couple minutes of a longer one, um, and we, you can go check it out, learn more. Um, but in the, in the video, she actually says this. In, in regard to what Donut Economics does, she starts off by saying the goal is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the planet. Later in the video, she actually said that what, what we need to do is actually shift from a capitalistic, consumeristic uh, society to actually focus on thriving resilience and well-being within the community. And when I heard those two things, though, I don't fully understand all of economics that go into everything. Uh, I don't understand all of the policy changes and everything that would need to happen here. But this piece made sense to me that what she's describing when she says to meet needs of all people within the means of the planet and to focus on thriving resilience and well-being in the community, what I believe she's talking about is hope. Now, Amsterdam is actually gonna be the first city to begin moving towards this donut economic, uh, uh, socioeconomic model. By the year 2050, they'll be fully integrated into this. They're already moving towards it. Now, what's interesting is that they actually chose to start moving forward to this during the pandemic. It was in the middle of a crisis that they actually paused to ask the question of, are people in Amsterdam thriving? And maybe even the, the deeper question there, are all people in Amsterdam thriving under our current economic model? So what they did is they're actually taking a tragedy 
in the midst of it, turning it into an opportunity. Now, as Amsterdam asked asked this question, is moving towards this, what I felt confronted by this is to ask myself the question, why do I live in the city that I live in? Why do I live in Fresno? I grew up in Clovis. I now live in Fresno. I've spent a year in Salt Lake. I've spent a year in New York. I've lived up in Sacramento. Why have I lived in the cities that I live? Now, you may have asked the question before, but maybe in a different tone. You, you know, maybe went to a city or grew up in a city, and oftentimes we ask the questions of, how is this city going to further my career? How is this city going to further or ground my family? How, how is this city going to provide me the opportunities for experience or leisure or lifestyle or whatever it is? Oftentimes, when we go to a city, we ask all the questions of how is this city going to benefit my life? How is this city going to serve me? How am I going to find flourishing in this city? At the end of the video, she talks a little bit about turning a a society from a me to a we. And again, in that, throughout this whole entire model, again, I don't understand all the economics of things, but I hear hope for all people. It actually starts to make us ask different questions of maybe not so much about why am I in this city and why is it to serve me, but why am I in this city and how can I serve it? So today we're going to wrap up our series, Placed for Purpose, over the last three weeks and now into this fourth week, we've been exploring how the relationships we have, the neighborhoods that we live in, and the work that we engage, uh, how it actually could all be for a greater purpose, a purpose that's actually designed by God. Now, in a way of culmination, today we're going to look at uh, being placed for purpose in our city. And really what we're going to see is how all of these things, all of these topics over the last Sundays are intricately connected to one another in the city that we live in. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Jeremiah 29. This is in the Old Testament, um, right after the book of Isaiah. Uh, If not, Kelly's going to post the scripture in the chat window. Uh, But we're going to to read this. Uh, I'm going to jump around a little bit uh, and then just kind of work through how this Old Testament prophecy uh, through the the voice of Jeremiah actually speaks to us today, how a few thousand years ago, we can still find relevance here. So Jeremiah 29, I'm just going to read verses 4 and then end with 11. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And then verse 11 says this, You've probably read it on a bumper sticker or a coffee mug. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now what we're reading here is Jeremiah 
a prophet who came after the prophet Isaiah. Prophets are those who hear the voice of God on behalf of the people of God. Um, and there's a couple things prophets really served as. And one was oftentimes this, this uh, rebuke of actions. Um, and here in so many ways, the people of God, the Israelites, are moving into Babylon because they were not living up to what God was calling them to live to. So in some ways, we see a rebuke that is going on here. Another role the prophets served, though, is they actually called the people to reimagine something different, to actually imagine what could be, to see a future that is greater than the one that they have in place right now. And what's going on here is we read the very beginning and we see it twice. We hear that this is what the Lord Almighty God said to Israel, those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The Israelites find themselves in exile in the city of Babylon under the king Nebuchadnezzar. This is the people of God who have been brought into a massive city, an oppressive city, a city that is filled with turmoil, that is filled with chaos, that is filled with hatred. The amount of religions that are going on there, they're competing for survival. The Israelites very quickly find themselves in a land that they do not belong. And the Babylonians got, the Babylonians got smart. And they actually, what they started to do is they actually invited people in that were not of them, and they would actually get them to assimilate into their lifestyle. They didn't push people out. They didn't just press people down. They asked them to assimilate because what happens in assimilation is people lose their story. People actually lose their heritage. People actually lose what has brought them there to today and they take on these new customs. And what we see here in verse, is we actually read down where God says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is completely backwards. This makes zero sense. All the people of God want to do is to stay in Jerusalem, to stay with their people, to stay with their culture, to stay with their customs. Now, again, we hear God say to the city which I carried you. See, very quickly, we see that Nebuchadnezzar brought the people, and ultimately what we're looking at is God using societal forces, the ways of Nebuchadnezzar, to actually carry out what he has planned for his people. It's not just the societal forces happening. God's hand is involved in it, and he wants them to hear, I have carried you there. Now, what happens very quickly is a couple other random prophets pop up and they start telling the people of Israel, don't worry, this is only going to last a couple of years. We'll be back in the land of Jerusalem in no time. We will not have to be in this city of all these other people that we do not belong with. We will go back to our glory land soon. And Jeremiah comes along and he says, no, I want you to build houses. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to start thinking generationally why you are, while you are here. And he actually ends up saying that it's going to be 70 years until you return back to Jerusalem, back to the land that God has promised you. Now, whether 70 years be the exact number or 70 years be a representation of a lifetime for them, 
what God was doing is he was intricately connecting the people to the city that they were in for their transformation. Building homes doesn't happen overnight. Planting gardens, you have to wait, you have to, you have to actually work, you have to water, you have, there's so many things that go into it that lead to, to the actual produce that we can then one day eat. To hand off children in marriage, it takes time. To see those children have children, it takes time. Ultimately, what God is doing is he is setting his people into exile. Again, for their transformation, which takes time. Now, I want us to ask the question of, are we in exile? We can go a lot of different ways with this. But if we're just to kind of draw from Jeremiah 29 here, what this might imply into our own life is that, did God carry us to this city now? In this time and in this place with these people? Is God's hand in when we look to a city and say, man, that's where my career is going to just flourish? Or maybe it's, hey, if I can get over to this side of the city, this is where my kids are going to flourish in the school district. Whatever the reasoning is, closer to the mountains, closer to the ocean, can God actually be in that more than just the societal forces that we oftentimes play by? I would hope so. Because if you're anything like me, as I oftentimes look to the ways that I can be served by my city, it ends up falling short. In some way, I'm disappointed. In some way, I'm let down. In some way, what I want to see happen and the things that I desire in my life and my status and my ego and my career and whatever it is, things start to fall short. And I would even go as far as saying things start to lack purpose. And the Israelites were asking these same things. Why are we here? And God intricately connects their prosperity with the city's prosperity. This is completely backwards. As we sit here in COVID right now, and we look at what the city of Amsterdam is doing, as they ask the questions of, under our current model, are all people flourishing? And clearly their answer was no. The inside of that donut, I just want to read these things off. The inside of the donut that says, hey, if we actually measure by these things, we can actually see flourishing in a community. Food security, health, education, income and work, peace and justice, political voice, social equity, gender equality, housing, networks, energy, and water. When's the last time you thought about your city that way? When's the last time you actually sat down and said, how is our city actually bringing hope to all people here? In a city that has a vast history of segregation, is a city that sees a pretty large divide uh, from north to south, as we see different inequities across our city, when's the last time you sat down and actually asked, why do I live here? And we have two options. We can look at it like the exiles in the city of Babylon and, and, and very quickly want to just move on, get back to where we were, get back to where we feel like we can flourish best. 
Or we can ask the question that God presents. How is my flourishing? How is my prosperity? How is my shalom connected to the greater prosperity of the city, the greater shalom of the city? Throughout scripture, we see a couple of categories that God clearly cares about and he asks us to care about. If we, if we actually break these categories down, there's a lot of layers to them, but we hear over and over and over again, God call his people, the people of God, to care for the widow, the orphaned, the poor, and the foreigner. The widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. And see, I think what's, what's going on here in a way, when God says, pray for the city that you live in, the one that I have carried you to that you do not want to be there, the one that you don't fully fit into, the one where you actually see brokenness and destruction, the one that, that can actually be hard to, to actually manage relationships in, to further yourself, whatever it is, in all of those things, he asks us to pray for it, to pray for the economic forces that are being played around us. And here's why I think that, why he does that and, and why that matters. Uh, one of the definitions I do love about prayer is that the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what I want him to do, but to be properly formed. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pray for certain things, I oftentimes move towards them. When I pray for my wife consistently, I actually move towards her in the right ways. When I pray for Midtown and I pray for all of you, I'm in a better position to be formed to move towards you. And I think the same thing applies to our city. That when we look at our city's landscape and we pray for our city, we pray for the leaders, we pray for the institutions, we pray for the people, and then specifically we pray for the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the foreigners. What ends up happening is that we're being formed. Formation doesn't come from looking in the mirror, formation actually comes from pressing into differences. And that's what our city provides. One of the beautiful things about Fresno, Adriana, I think about you in Berkeley, but some of the beautiful things is there's diversity. There's differences of opinion. There's difference of worldview. There's difference of experience and heritage and customs and culture and race. And we go on and on and on. And I think that, the, that what's happening for us in this city in Fresno, we can actually be formed by it. That when our city prospers, we can prosper. Now, there's another way that we can connect with Jeremiah 29.7 four to 11. Um, and that's in the, in the place of actually being exiles. Now, I know this isn't a common thought. I think in Western Christianity, we quickly forget if you've been in the church for any time, if you call yourself a Christian, uh, in some ways, Christian has been a dominant culture in America specifically since its start. Uh, I'm not going to get into all the layers of why some of that's true and, and why it's not. And oftentimes we're called a Christian nation, but I do want to say that there's been a, a, there's been privilege here to be a Christian. There's been an association, an affiliation to be a Christian that oftentimes can be a, an identity piece. But we're not oftentimes thought of as exiles. 
but we are. If you call yourself a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, we are actual exiles in this land. Peter talks about it in the New Testament. James talks about it in the New Testament. Other places talk about it in the New Testament that we are seen as exiles. And what I mean by that is that we reside in two places. We see the kingdom of God and we see the kingdom of earth. And one thing that we believe that comes through Jesus as even as we kick off this Advent season that leads towards Christmas is we actually see Jesus step into exile for us. A king who leaves his kingdom on behalf of those who are exiled, on behalf of those who are lost, on behalf of the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the foreigners. Jesus pursues us first in this, and then he actually calls us to participate in more as exiles, the exiles that we find ourselves in this land. In the New Testament, Jesus, after he reads the Beatitudes, he says this. Let me find it. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And I want us to hear this. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, instead they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. See, if we go back to what God is telling his people as they enter into Babylon to build houses, to plant gardens, to marry, to look forward to the generations. And all of those things, what starts to happen is you start to learn about the land. You start to learn about the soil. You start to learn about the people next to you. And then he calls us to pray, to pray for all of that. And in that prayer, we're seeking prosperity for our city. And I believe when we pray, we actually move towards things. And I'm just going to say it again because I want us to hear it over and over and over. That in our city, if we look at what God calls all of people to, is to love and serve the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. Those that are marginalized. Those that are on the fringes of society. Those that have been oppressed by others, by institutions, by the infrastructures that we have in place. And again, if we look at the donut economics video, one of the greatest things I take from that is a city that is asking the question, how can we bring hope to all people? A hope that actually looks like opportunity and flourishing in all of the basic human ways. So the question to us in this passage is as we find ourselves here in the city, living between two worlds, one foot in the kingdom of God, one foot in the kingdom of the earth, as Jesus teaches us to pray in the very beginning, he says, Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, the prayer is not just to ask God to do this, but actually to move into it with him. This is the invitation of Jesus and the hope that he brings in Christmas. So a starting place for us is to look at two ways. One is scattered and one is structured. As a church, as Midtown, we are a structure of people, the people of God. And there's going to be ways that we engage our city. 
Right now, we've be began the process of actually partnering with Neighborhood Thrift in Tower to form a community development corporation. And a part of this is to actually intricately align ourselves with our city, specifically Tower, so that we can be a part of bringing hope in partnership with city dynamics. And the second part is scattered. You and I, each of us, as we've looked at relationships, if we've looked at neighborhood and if we've looked at work, each of us has the opportunity to bring the light that Jesus brings and then carry out the good deeds of the city. And the purpose in that, God says, is that he will be glorified. See, in us actually carrying out the hope that Jesus brings in both word and deed, people start to look to God. Leslie Newbigin, he was a missionary, and he said that living in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer is the way that we are called to live as followers of Jesus. Meaning that we need to be living and associating with people who have no hope, who do not have the hope that Jesus brings. One of the beautiful things that, G that God did with the people in Babylon, the people of God, is that he placed them in and around people who had different belief systems, who had different worldviews, who in so many ways did not have the hope that comes from a relationship with God, who did not have the hope in the coming of the Messiah. Jesus, who we now have hope in, who has come. And through his life, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection, we find our hope. And what starts to happen in that is that we should be compelled to share this hope with all other people. That in a time of a pandemic, we are a non-anxious presence that brings hope to people. That in the infrastructures that oppress so many people throughout our city, we should be a part of bringing hope to them. Because when our city begins to prosper, what we start to see is that people and places are beginning to prosper. And in that, our prosperity is intricately connected. See, God has us placed in cities for a purpose. And the purpose is so much greater than just asking the questions, how, the, how is this city here to serve me? So what I want to ask us to do is that we have, call it a month left in December or in, in 2020. And for the month of December, we as a structure of people and we as a scattered people, the invitation is for us to pray, to pray for our city. And we're going to find ways to do this over this next month again as a structure. And I hope that that would compel you to pray individually. One way to do that individually is set an alarm. Set an alarm for 559 on your, you know, so every time your phone, you hit 559 in the evening or if you're a morning person, just pray for your city. Pray for the leaders, pray for those who are marginalized, who are oppressed, pray for the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the foreigners. And can we just be open to see what happens? Can we, we be open to actually trust that God has us placed here for a purpose and we pursue him, we will find what that purpose is. And that begins in prayer. And we will do that both again as a structure and as a scattered people. So let's end with this. I wanna give us a picture of where our hope comes from. Um, I'm gonna first just read a scripture and then I'm gonna have Kelly to scroll through some in images and then we will go to communion. 
So the book of Revelation, which ends scripture, we see an image of what's referred to as the New Jerusalem, an image that is a, a new city. And I want us to hear in this that oftentimes there's a thought that, that when we pass on, when we die, again, I don't have all this figured out. I think we're all going to be surprised in some ways. But the thought is that we just, we leave earth. We go somewhere else. We have some wings and some halos. We're floating around in the, in the clouds and there's harps playing and, right, all the images we've seen that I don't know where they've all come from. Anyways, um, we actually see here that what God is in the business of is actually creating a new city. And the invitation is for us to, to actually participate in this city. Todd Bolsinger wrote a book called Canoeing the Mountains. Um, and he said this, the goal of the Christian faith is not simply to become a more loving community, but to be a community of people who to participate in God's mission to heal the world by reestablishing his loving reign on earth as it is in heaven. And we see this image, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and for the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or cry or pain for the older the old order of things has passed away. Kelly, if you can go ahead and pull up those images, I just want us to end with this. I was introduced to something called shadow art. Uh, this is probably a year ago now. But as you see here, uh, you look at the, the, the actual structures here, oftentimes it's just random things. And without the light, you would just see these little sculptures of random things. But with the light, you actually see something come to life. Uh, go ahead and go to the next one, maybe to scroll every five seconds or so. Uh, again, that looks like a bunch of chains that's glued together. But what you see is someone holding up what could be thought of as the image of the globe. Um, let's keep going. I just, I don't understand this. This, this is actually just, just mind-blowing to me that they pull these things off. Let's keep going. Little Michael Jackson for you. And again, uh, there's just, the, the, the structure does not resemble what actually is, is revealed when light is shown on it. And this is the image I wanna leave us with. This is a table of trash. This is a, a table of trash that has been shot with a BB gun or, or something. But what we see here is, I would just encourage us to look at is oftentimes this is the view of our city, the brokenness, the turmoil, the, the, the hatred, the oppression. And then if we, we, maybe we look at it from other angles and all we see is the homelessness and, and we just ask questions of why did they end up there? Why, why can't they just clean themselves up? Or we, we, we think about things like uh, single mother births and, and teen pregnancies and so many different things. And oftentimes we can just ask these questions of what's wrong? Why, why, why are these people making these decisions? Or we look at the, the structures. I mean, I think about, again, I brought up redlining earlier. My buddy Joe that pastors in Jackson neighborhood on the deed of his house, 
there is language uh, that actually says that certain ethnic groups cannot purchase this house. This is the history that we have in our city. But what we see in the light is the destiny that God has for our city. In so many ways, what we see here is that our destiny is actually found in our history. And that destiny is us being the light to the world. That destiny is us carrying out good deeds to our city. Thank you, Kelly. This is the word from Jeremiah. From God through Jeremiah. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper.